Okay, we want to continue our focus. And I thought it might be a good example to... Well, how would Jesus describe evangelism? What would He use to inform... Because we've got to remember, He called us in the beginning. In fact, let's start with that calling in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, which might be good to read what's before, right? Because something happened from that time on. That's why you want to read it in context. So as Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once... They left their nets and followed Him. Now I know many times we've used this passage and think this was just the first time that Jesus came to them and said, follow me, and for some reason they did. We know chronologically that's not the case. Jesus actually had interaction with them many months before this. Many times they heard His teaching. But now from this time on, He finally goes, okay, all those who've heard me, who've heard the sermons, who've heard the lessons, who've seen some of the miracles, okay, now it's time for me to call a commitment And now he comes to him and says, okay, guys, come follow me. But there was some history before this moment. And so they responded. But notice what he's calling us to. So often as we hear in this world about becoming a Christian, it's it's more about what we get rather than what we're supposed to give to God in response. And so the very first thing that Jesus says to anyone who claims to follow him has nothing to do with you. It has all to do with his mission. His purpose. I will make you fishers of men. Now, catch that part. Who makes you a fisher of men? Not you? Ah, how many of us have tried to make ourselves fishers of men? And sometimes we find success, but probably predominantly if you're like me, it tends to not always work so well that way. That's because it's not supposed to be on us. We're supposed to just follow Jesus. And as we follow... He makes us fishers of men. So if you're not feeling effective as a fisher of men, the issue is not your fishing. It's your following. There you go. You just need to follow. And He will make you fishers of men. And as Jesus called people to follow Him, He did a lot of teaching. I'm okay. Because I know my question would be, okay, I'm following you, Jesus. You're going to make me a fisherman. How? How are you going to make me a fisher of men? Well, what is it that I need to do? What is it I need to become to be a fisher of men? And Jesus gives us two metaphors. That's why I call this the metaphors on our mission. And what's funny is so often we've heard individual messages of these metaphors split apart separate. And yet reality is, it surprised me even as I was preparing this, they were actually together. Back to back. One verse after the other. I'm going to start breaking them up but then I'm going to come back together. Why were they together? Why did he connect both these metaphors? But to begin, we got to follow first. If we don't follow, he can't make us a fisher of men. One of the greatest passages, if you want to know very practically, very clearly, what does he expect of a follower? He doesn't want you to emotionally follow. He wants you to count the cost. Go to Luke 14, verse 25. I know a lot of us know this passage, but I think it's a good reminder for us all. If you're visiting us today... And you've never really heard, okay, I heard of being a Christian. I don't really know what it means to be a fisher of men. I've never really heard, what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? Well, let me encourage you 
That's where most of us were at some point in our life. And I don't want you to feel like you're left out. You're not. We'd encourage you before you leave today, ask someone, hey, I'd like to know more about this. But I'm going to help you right now. In case you were ever wondering, what does Jesus expect of a follower of Jesus? He lays it out very clearly here in Luke 14. And yet it's funny how this passage is not used in very many sermons in Christian churches today. Verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, He said, If... I want to stop there for a minute. Because what Jesus tells us, and what obviously Luke is doing in this Gospel account, is saying, you can be in the crowd of Jesus. You can claim that you're around Him, that you believe in Him. You even maybe sing to Him. You might even attend services in honor of Him. But if you're still in the crowd, you're not a follower. Because if it was enough to be in the crowd, it wouldn't be followed by if. It'd be, good job guys, you're in the crowd. And that was most of my religious life. I was in the crowd of Jesus, but I wasn't personally following Jesus. Come on now. So what is it He expects? If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. You can be in the crowd all you want, But if you don't live up to this first condition, you cannot be a true Christian. You cannot be a follower of Christ. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus. Anyone who does not carry His cross and follow Me cannot be My disciple. Now I know, if this is the first time you heard it, like the first time when I heard it, hate? What are you talking about? And I know in a lot of religious circles, they try to soften the blow of this. Oh, it really means love less. No, the actual Greek word there is hate. It's not love less. That would be a different Greek word. What do you mean, Jesus? And I'll be honest, I'll have the same question. Like, Jesus, you're, you're a cult. Which, by the way, that's actually what they were referred to back then. In other words, if you're a true follower... We're going to think you're crazy. But if you know who Jesus is, if you're following Jesus, you'd have a better understanding of what He means by this. Do you think He literally means to sin, hate? No. Because He says even love your enemy. Who would be the easiest person to hate in your life? Your enemy. You notice the enemies missing from this list? That right there tells me this isn't meant as hate someone's sin. It just means the passion, the level of how much Jesus has to be first, this is how you treat everyone else. And see, here's the reality. An enemy would never get me to turn toward them rather than Jesus. They're my enemy. I'm not going to listen to them. But I might listen to my parents. I might listen to my brother, my sister, girlfriend, boyfriend, or myself. See, Jesus understood we don't need to worry about our enemy pulling us away from Him. We can be worried about those who become closer to us than Him. And if you want to be a disciple, you may have to lose some of those relationships. Other pastors say He came to divide father and brother, mother, daughter. When you commit to Jesus, it affects every relationship in your life. And some of us experience that. Our parents may have disowned us. 
disowned you. And yet I don't believe it made us less loving. I think this commitment to Jesus makes us more loving. But that doesn't mean everyone understands it. Then it goes on. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? And what's the answer to that question? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're going to take on this huge task, this huge project, you're not just going to go do that emotionally. You're not going to do it without counting the cost. Do I have the supplies? Do I have what it takes? Do I have the manpower? Am I going to be able to complete this to the end? Because then he goes, for if he lays the foundation, is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Following Jesus is no emotional decision. It affects your emotions. But you've got to count the cost. You can't do it for a while. You've got to do it to the end. Now, I'll be honest, when I was 23 years old and I made a decision, Jesus is Lord, okay, I'm going to start building this tower, I didn't know for sure how long I'd be able to do it. But I knew building my own tower didn't seem to be working. My own kingdom wasn't going very well. Which is why it leads to the very next concept. Well, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? These are rhetorical questions, have you noticed? (laughs) I think if it even was switched around, though, and you had the 20,000, and Jesus was the 10,000, he'd still win because he's Jesus. They'd be like ninjas or something, man. They'd just totally take us out. So it's not about the numbers. It's about logic. It's like, there's something more powerful than you. You've got to count the cost. If he is not able, which you're going to realize you're not, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In other words, if you're thinking, I'll wait till when God comes and then it's too late. You've got to ask for terms of peace now. Well, it's still a long way off and we don't know what day he's going to return. This king is more powerful than us. You've got you to make terms of peace right this moment. And the only way you're going to survive if he's more powerful is white flag, baby. Surrender. And when you surrender, what's that mean? In the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. If you want to live, you give up everything. Whatever was your kingdom is now His. So what would that entail? Well, there's a lot of things in your kingdom, right? One of the best stories that I was told is the story of a man coming before the throne of Jesus asking, what does it mean to give up everything? And you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. I just love the story because I think it, it helps us understand what does it mean to give up everything. So he comes before Jesus. He goes, okay, Jesus, I, I want to be your disciple. I want, to, uh, you, I want you Lord of my life. Here you go. He goes, okay. What's that in your pocket? Oh, that's my wallet. Uh-huh. And what's that represent? Well, that, that's my money, my bank account, my possessions. You know, Okay, that's mine. So the man pulls out all his credit cards, his money, with this idea that everything goes, oh, in the wallet too, you don't need that anymore. It's like, okay. There, give, well, what's in your other pocket? Well, well that's, that's my keys, man. I, I got a car, I got a house, you know, I, my job, I'm responsible for opening it up. I mean, that's right. All that is mine now too. The man takes off the key. Understand, he's giving all those things. He goes, oh, the keychain as well. You don't need it anymore. Okay, man, I've given you everything. He's like, what are you wearing? There's people here. As you, 
Enter the world is how you exit it. So the man just kind of like takes off his clothes and puts it before the Lord. He's like, there, I've given you everything. He goes, no, what's that on your hand? Well, I'm married. I have a family. Mm-hmm. Or if you were single, you will have eventually a family. Guess whose it is? You don't decide anymore. He does. So the man understood that he's given his family. He's like, man, I've given you everything. He goes, no, what's that on your wrist? Well, it's my watch. It's how I tell time when to get up, when to go there, when to do this. That's right. Every second, minute, hour, day, week, month, year, decade of your life is mine. And the man gave the watch, understanding that that is now also God's. It's like, I've given you everything. He says, no, there's still one more thing. Yourself. So somehow, because it is up there in heaven and impossible things can happen there, he, he kind of just, his body came off his soul and he put it before the altar of Jesus and all that remained was a pulsing soul. And Jesus looked at his stuff and goes, man, there's some really cool stuff right here. But you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I have other things I'm more concerned about, but I need someone to take care of this stuff of mine. So he started looking around and people going, hey, would, would you like, and of course the soul's going, me, 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 me. And Jesus goes, of course, who knows this stuff best? And he gives back the man everything that was laid before him. What was the difference between when he entered the throne room and when he left? When he entered it, who owned it? When he left, who owned it? That's what it means to give up everything. Now, he may literally ask you to give up something. I've had to in my journey. Giving up a career, giving up even college. I didn't even graduate to go to Russia. God gave it back. I don't know what He's going to ask you to do, but we've got to be willing to give it all up, both presently and maybe something in the future. This is what it means to follow Jesus. But how is that going to help us become fishermen? How does He go from us following to making us fishermen? And that's where I believe these two metaphors are really what it's all about. But it's funny, as he already hits it right here in Luke. Let's add these verses that we often leave off the study, but I think they're very important. Verse 34 of Luke 14. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. Yes, even the Bible uses those words. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. Matthew adds this to the discussion in his gospel account. Another reason why we have more than one gospel. Give us a fuller picture. Matthew 5.13 says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now, I'll be honest, that story, that little verses, that, what does he mean by that? Now, part of the problem is salt of the ancient world is very different than the salt of the modern world. Today's salt, actually, does, it's really hard to lose its saltiness. It's one of the most strongest molecule things of today. But the ancient world salt wasn't. It was more impure. It actually could lose its quality. But what's this have to do with the manure pile? Like, how did he connect salt with the manure pile and, and people trampling on Like, what does he mean by this to be the salt of the earth? Well, this is where it's really good 
to get some historical context. And I was amazed as I looked this up, and it's actually still present today, still practiced today, that will really help clarify. And it will connect. Why did he use both metaphors, salt of the earth, and we'll see the one he connects to it, light of the world? Why, did, why were those two together? Here's why. The actual Hebrew word used for earth is also the same Hebrew word used for clay oven. You know, well, what's that got to do with it? Well, here's what's amazing. What a lot of the people do back then, and actually some still do today in Israel, is rather than cook with wood, they would have these earth ovens, and they would actually get cow or camel manure. They would add salt, make it into a patty, they would put a salt slab, put the patties on it, and the salt qualities within the manure actually was the fire that would be light. <laughs> so we see the salt and the light becoming one. Now, as it burns, guess what happens? It loses its saltiness. And so what do you do with it when the fire is over? You throw it on the ground to be trampled by feet. So really, this wasn't a negative connotation. You just think, this is what happens with salt. If it's lost, it's gone. It's over. So in other words... You need to be the salt of the earth. You need to be something that brings heat, fire, light. But you're going to run out. Eventually it loses it. What do you do then? It's just going to be thrown away. It's not fit for anything. That's why he brought in the light. You need a source of continual power that has nothing to do with you. So let's start with the salt. How is salt a great metaphor? Remember, a metaphor is using something else to represent what you're trying to to really investigate. So he's trying to tell us how we're going to be fishers of men. How are we going to be great at evangelism, at his mission? And he's going to use salt as the metaphor to help us understand how to be effective in our mission for him. So when we think of salt, there's a lot of cool qualities about it. One we just learned. It can actually be used to burn, to be a light. But salt, here's the first one. It comes in little pieces. And does one grain of salt do much? So, do you think by yourself, in evangelism, is going to do much? But how about a bunch of grains together? Can that do something? Absolutely. Evangelism was never meant to be individual, personal, by yourself, on your own strength. It, you can't do it. It's little. But a lot of salt together... Now we're talking. That can do amazing things. The second thing salt does, that we don't use it today for this purpose, but in the ancient world, it was huge. Salt preserves. You know, a lot of the third world, even today, how do they preserve food without a refrigerator? Salt. They packed it in salt, and it actually prevented, particularly meats, from spoiling. So when I think of from evangelism, that's what we're meant to be. We're supposed to be a salt that preserves, uh, that prevents each other from spoiling, from going back to our sinful lives. And we've got to be salt of the earth. We can't just preserve ourselves. We've got to be intentionally helping others to preserve their life, to warn them, don't go that way, it's going to spoil you. That's what he means about being the salt of the earth. Another thing salt does... It causes thirst. 
right? You eat a bunch of salty things. Guess what's next? I've got a drink. Now, there's often the phrase, you can't make a horse drink the water, but you can salt the oats. Right? I can't force a horse to drink water, but if I salt his oats, trust me, he's going to go drink. So what are you saying? we got to live the kind of lives that the salt that's, that we are, so it's not what you do, it's who you are, it's being salt, actually makes other people go, I want some of that. Now you think, okay, that means oh, i got to be this perfect spiritual giant example. No, it actually may mean be your worst, but with God. If you're going through a real hard time, but you're not letting it destroy you, but you're actually still joyful, you're still persevering, you are still kind and loving, even that is, I want that because I couldn't act that way in that hard time. It's not about being perfect. But it's about having a life that people go, I want that. And I know that if you thought back, when you made the decision to follow Jesus, there were people around you God used to go, I want that. I remember coming as a young 23-year-old, thinking I'm a Christian, realizing I'm not, having come out of two impure relationships, even though I had this desire growing up to have a pure relationship, to be married in purity, nothing was working building my own tower. And when I came and I saw someone share their story of how they were married and were about to get divorced, and then how because of God and following Jesus, they reconciled and they had this amazing marriage. And I'm like, no. And I literally did go up to that couple. I know, visitor, I was pretty bold. But I said, is that real? <laughs> yeah, it was. And they were just blunt, honest with me. What? And I'm just like, no way. And then more and more as I interacted with the members of the church, they were all that way. They were all real. They were honest. They, they were sharing stuff. They showed them like, oh, I'm struggling with that. Do I have to be open about that? Oh, boy. But I was thirsty. I want what they have. I want that hope. I want that endurance. I want that joy. I want victory over sin in my life. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth, guys. It doesn't mean be perfect. But it means, man, when people see our life, they go, I want, I want to drink what you're drinking. And I'm not talking about Kool-Aid, okay? We've, we've seen that go, Ari, as well, not too far from here in Waco many, many years ago. Okay, We're not talking about that. What else does salt do? It brings out the flavor. It's amazing. When you put the right amount of salt, you actually don't taste the salt. You taste what it brings out. Right? You put too little, doesn't work. You put too much, not good. It's the right amount. That's what we should be doing for each other. It's amazing how we forget that we should be the greatest fans of each other. We get accused by the world, by Satan, by our bosses, by our teachers, by our neighbors, by our parents, by our brothers and sisters. This shouldn't be the place we get that, and yet it happens. This should be the place that, yes, we're sinners. We may even sin against each other. But we're going to forgive each other. And you know what? I know you hurt me, but I'm going to love you. I'm going to be salt. I'm going to bring out the best of you rather than the worst in you. That's what should happen in here. That's what will make other people thirsty. Are we bringing out the best in one another? Some of us, we've been friends for so long, that's all we are. We're not iron sharpening iron anymore. And that's a dangerous place to be. We all need people that are ahead of us in life. But we can get comfortable just being with the people we want to be with, the people we're used to. 
and not be with everyone. Now, I was convicted by this this week. One of my projects is I have to come up with this major study, and ethnography is what it's called, and it's, it's about understanding a situation in our ministry context. And the one I wanted to really understand more is our singles ministry. How, how is it really to be a single in our church? Because it's a very complex ministry, and yet we just stick it all into one group. Think about it, guys. Think about the singles measurement. You have younger, you have older singles. You have singles just out of college, singles with established careers. You have singles who want to be single. You have singles who don't want to be single. You have singles that are single because they're single or single because they're divorced or widowed or a widower. You have singles of different ages, different races, different genders, right? I mean, this is complex ministry. I need to understand. And so I interviewed several singles, different ages, different backgrounds, different nationalities, and I was floored by some of the things they feel. But the number one thing I felt is they feel alone because the rest of us don't really engage. Yet I see a lot of the singles try to and they have a lot to offer. Some of the ideas here come up and they're like, oh, wait, i got to take a note on that one. <laughs> Guys, we got to work together. Married, singles, teens, campus. We're one big family. We should be the greatest fans of each other. And we bring out the best, but not just in each other. When you meet with sinners in the world, if you're the salt of the earth, you don't just look at what's bad about them in their walk with God. Find something that's good. You know, we're actually doing marriage counseling for, Sari, not, for, for several couples that are not in the church. And you know what? They're amazing. They gotta meet, there's stuff we can learn from them. There's stuff that I'm going, man, guys, you, that's great. Now you add God to that, it's going to even go further. We've got to start to look and bring out the good in humanity and not just the bad. But one thing to remember, too much salt actually hinders growth. In fact, it can kill. You drink too much salt, you literally can die. You put a bunch of salt in grass, it will kill the grass. What's this a good reminder for us in evangelism? It's not to manipulate. It's not to Bible bang as it used to be called. Don't overdo it. Give them a taste. If they're not thirsty, they don't want to drink it, you can't force it down the throat. You'll do more damage than good. Amen? So that's salt. So why does he connect the light of the world? Well, remember, that salt of the earth, this clay oven, made with the manure, with the salt, it would burn up and produce light. And so we see this next metaphor, the light. We'll actually read in Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, that's a metaphor. You see that phrase? He's saying, what illustration I just gave you? It's a metaphor for what I want you to understand or do or become. In the same way as this light, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So what can we learn about light in terms of being effective in our mission in evangelism? First, light always radiates outward. Never inward. That would be a black hole. Not a good place to be. Light is outward. Jesus is the source of that light, not us. So if He's not in you, you can't radiate it outwards. 
That was my frustration the majority of my 23 first years of thinking I'm a Christian, but having no impact on anyone else and no impact in my own life because I couldn't radiate light. It wasn't in me. I wasn't following Him as we talked earlier. He's the source. See, light, the second thing, draws attention to another object rather than to itself. When you come into a dark room you turn on a light, do you look at the light? No! And if you do, you're going to be like, whoa! You look at what it shines on. Right? That's light. It's not about us. It's about the source. I think one of the greatest analogies that, as I was looking this up of who are we in this reflection and light. The best way to think of it is this way. Jesus is the Son, not just S-O-N, S-U-N. Okay? He's the Son. All we are is the moon. We're dead dirt. We have no light source or power of ourselves. But when we are away from the world, when we're not facing the world, we're facing the sun directly, guess what the moon does? It reflects the light. And it's a bright light. It can, it can light up a dark night. But if I suddenly start turning away from the sun and get more behind the world, I can't reflect the sun's light. And in fact, if I'm on the other side and the light's behind me, but I'm facing the world, it's actually just black. I block the light. If we're going to be the light of the world, we've got to get away from the world. We're still in it, but we're not of it. And we've got to focus on Jesus to reflect off us and be a moon. My question is, what moon do you want to be? you want to be that little sliver? New moon? The one that you can't see? Or do you want to be the full moon? Yeah. I think that's what God desires for all of us. Amen? We've got to reflect that light. We also, third thing, we notice light only when it's absent. For example, if I were to have a little lighter up here right now, I don't smoke, good thing. Okay, I don't have it. You wouldn't really see this. But if I turn out the lights completely in this room and I use that lighter, you'd all see it. It's actually the absence of light where light now becomes recognizable. Guys, we don't need to be away from the world. We're still in it, just don't live of it. We've got to be in people's lives to be a light of the world. We've got to not be afraid to be in the darkness with God to be a light to others. But be careful that the darkness doesn't overtake you. Amen? Light, this one's cool, is silent. Let that sink in. Light is silent. Except for, you know, those ones that hum. Fluorescence, yeah, irritating. I don't want to be a fluorescent light. That's irritating. Light is silent. What does that mean, guys? This ought to encourage you. Derek, I can't be a good fisherman. I don't know what to say. I don't need to communicate. Good, just be a light. Light's silent. You don't have to be great at what you say. You can learn how to be better at it, but guess what? That's not what it takes. Just be a light. Live following Jesus and your life will communicate for you. Right? Light's silent. It doesn't have to be loud. Just live that life. And of course, as we saw from the passage itself, because he says in the same way, light does no good if it's under a bowl. Where's our light right now? Is there a bowl covering it up? And maybe it's covering up not because we have a light, but because we actually don't have a light and we don't want people to see it. The reality of our life. The darkness that's really 
dominating our, our walk. Jesus is the light. He can fix that. He can, he's the source that we need to reflect. How are you going to be a light of the world? Luke 11 verse 33 adds this, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on its stand, so that those who come in may see the light. Notice it says may come in. Not everyone will. But just be a light. And there may be some people that will see it, and they'll come. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. Ah, we're getting a little hint here. How to be that light, it's what you put in. That's going to be the kind of light that goes out. Don't miss this, guys. You want to be a light? If you're putting in pornography, you're putting in materialism, you're putting in dollar signs in your bank account, if that's all you're inputting into your head, that's all that's going to come out. But if you're putting in spirituality, you're putting in generosity, you're putting in gratitude, if you're looking at those things that are pure and holy and good, then that's what's going to come out. Do not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That's not a negative verse. It's so funny when we hear that, like, yeah, you reap what you sow. No, it's actually a positive command. You reap what you sow. You sow purity, you reap purity. You sow love, you reap love. You sow self-control, you reap self-control. It's not a negative verse. Unless you sow the negative things. We've got to be the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are bad, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light, no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. So how do we do that? How do we get that right light in us completely? Well, again, guess who it comes back to? Who makes you a fisherman? Who's going to make you the salt of the earth? Who's going to make you the light of the world? Jesus. How do we get the light? You need the Word. And see, we missed this, and we're going to read it in John chapter 1. It's one of my favorite first few verses of any gospel because it's an incredible metaphor that John uses. But we we don't truly appreciate when he says it. The Word became flesh. We suddenly think this. But at the time that was written, you didn't have this. It wasn't collected yet. You had maybe the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament collection, but you didn't have any of the collection of the New Testament yet at that time. So when they refer to the Word, they're not referring to a book. They're referring literally to what Jesus said, if they heard it, or what Jesus said and spoke through the apostles or spoke to the followers of Jesus. To them, the Word was the Word coming from God through Jesus Christ and through His followers. It wasn't just something you read. It was the Word. It's not just about you reading. It's about you listening. Most of the commands in the Bible don't say read. It says listen. Listen to the Word. Let's read in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made. Without Him, nothing was made. Without Him, nothing was made. Without Him, you can't make yourself a fisher of men. Because without Him, nothing is made. Do you get it? Do I need to keep going? 
Is it sunk in yet? Without Him, nothing! In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Boy, is that encouraging words. You might be sitting right there going, Derek, you don't understand the darkness I'm in. I may understand more than you know. A lot of people here sitting may understand more than you know because they've been there. And we all know we could be there again. But we also know it does not have to overcome us. There is a way out, and it's Jesus. He's the light. He's a light that shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that all through Him might believe. He Himself was not the light. He's just the moon, just like the rest of us. He came only as a witness to the light. That's all we are, guys. If we're the light of the world, it's not because we're the light. Jesus is the light in us, through us, with us. But the source of the power and the light is Him. We just need to reflect it. So guys, we see these two metaphors. And yet so often we've heard separate messages, haven't we? And I've been the culprit of doing that. And yet, they were meant to be together. The very salt used in the clay oven produced the very light that could burn. They were always meant to be together. Both of these metaphors are all about influence. Do our lives influence others to consider where their walk with God is at? That's what it is. That, that's what evangelism is. You can't force anyone to believe. You can't force anyone to follow. But we can influence if we take these two things to heart. I love this quote by Fred Wevedu. The kingdom of God is advanced by the spiritual transformation of ordinary people living among the lost. Just live. Live your life with God. Follow Him. Be the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world. And other people will see it. And they just might ask you, can I have some of that? Can you share with me how to get that? Let's conclude by putting these two verses back together as they were meant to be. One verse after the other. Matthew 5 verse 13 and Matthew 5 verse 14. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's be both as we strive to follow Jesus and together be that salt and be that light. Let's go to God in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we are so encouraged that we don't need to make ourselves fishers of men. And maybe that's been our problem is we've tried to do it with our own strength, our own knowledge, our own wisdom, and maybe even trying to do it alone. And that was never your intention. We just need to follow you to count that cost, to consider you as the most important relationship in our life, to build the tower to its completion, and to give up everything because you give us so much more than what we can hold on to. And then that will allow us to be transformed, to become the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Help us, God, this week. If there's any darkness in us, please shine your light on it. If there's anything in our life that needs help, Help us not to to hide in shame, but instead know that our brothers and sisters are our biggest fans. And I pray as we see sin in others, help us to find what's best in them and not what's the worst. Help us to fight for each other and to love each other. 
Thank you so much for this opportunity to be a part of your mission to bring redemption, eternal life to a lost world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.